Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatisparks.com. And when you select the quiz, you'll automatically be added to my, um, my mailing list where you'll find all kinds of interesting tidbits of advice and information on how to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm super excited to have as my guest, Rachel Krantz. Rachel is a journalist and one of the founding editors of Bustle, where she served as senior features editor for three years. Her work has been featured on NPR, The Guardian, Vox, Vice, and many other outlets. She's the recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Peabody Award for her work as an investigative reporter with YR Media. And I'm going to bring Rachel into the show right now. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So glad to have you. So, yeah, I was really excited when I saw that you have this book. Um, what, what was the background that led you to write this book? Can you tell us a little bit about your history and your story? Sure. Well, so I was working as an editor at a website called Bustle, Um when I met a man named Adam in 2015, who I saw very quickly in love with. Um, and he told me on our first date that he was non-monogamous, um, or on his, our second date rather, and, you know, made it clear that he was looking for a primary partner, someone to share his life with, but that um, if I were with him, I wouldn't be restricted. And mm-hmm. so I was, um, you know, hesitant, but also intrigued and sort of was a serial monogamous and wanted to try And then once we opened up, I had started, you know, writing some articles in an attempt to process my jealousy. And I was then approached by an agent who was like, you should write a book about this, mixing, excuse me, mixing journalism with, um, you know, memoir. And I said, yeah, sure, someday, but I'm so jealous right now, I can't even think about it. And she said, well, (laughs) just start, you know, writing things down. And I was already keeping a journal, um, but you know, this idea of a future book one day became a sort of writerly coping mechanism of if I just keep a detailed record of everything that's happening at this intense pace of exploration, um, this intense pace, it felt like Adam demanded as well, that, you know, it, it kind of made me feel like I had some control over the situation that I otherwise wouldn't feel. And then mm-hmm. when the relationship, unfortunately, headed in a direction with a lot of gaslighting and he was telling me, you're remembering things wrong or I didn't say that or, you know, you're misinterpreting reality, the recording became a way to try to have some sort of solid record in this idea of a, this all being for some imaginary book, potentially one day that might help other people in that situation um, was sort of like a yeah, just like a hope and a dream, but I wasn't really sure I would actually do it um, until later when I decided once I emerged from that situation, still non-monogamous, but also very much knowing that 
that relationship had been characterized by a lot of unhealthy things, I think I sort of needed to sift through the rubble of those years and figure out what happened, what does it mean, what do I want to take with me, what do I want to leave behind, what what might healthier non-monogamous and kinky relationships look like. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what are you, how are you now? Like, did, did that help you realize that you wanted to have ongoing non-monogamous relationships? Or have you kind of gone back and forth since then? Um, no, it, yeah, it made me realize I, I do want to be non-monogamous um, and that I at least feel like it has to always be an open, ongoing conversation. So mm-hmm. obviously there's periods of, you know, during the pandemic, for example, I was physically um, monogamous until there was a vaccine with just one mm-hmm. partner, but mm-hmm. emotionally not at all. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a certain like fluidity to these things. But for me, I realized, yeah, it does feel more true to the way I want to be in relationship, but I also very much approach it as a, a conversation of, okay, but anyone I'm involved with needs to feel safe enough. Um, and, yeah, I think it it can be, uh, you know, flexible sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so do you pretty much identify as polyamorous or do you use the word non- – what are your mm-hmm. labels that you identify with? <laughs> yeah, I say polyamorous, even though it's funny when I was at my most jealous in the relationship with Adam, that word in itself was, like, scary to me. And so it's uh. funny now, you know, that I'm not experiencing all that jealousy or – or triggering or in a situation where I feel unsafe that now I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm polyamorous. Like that's for sure. I definitely know I can love more than one person at once be in relationship with more than one person. And um, yeah. So that feels like a comfortable label. Mm-hmm. And then as you were writing about it, did you um, discover anything more about yourself from the writing? Oh, so much. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to describe, I guess, because uh-huh. it's just so much. Um, I mean, I think I discovered that I'm stronger than I had been giving myself credit for um, uh-huh. and could be quite disciplined. <laughs> and I also, yeah, just learned a lot more about what I like about these dynamics and models and what wasn't working for me because in the book, it's told very narratively as memoir, but it's contextualized throughout with all the reporting I did, both as I was living it naturally as a journalist, having conversations with people, recording conversations, um, but also in retrospect, as I was writing the book, talking to psychologists, having them look at, you know, verbatim transcripts that had transpired of conversations to dissect exactly what was going on in terms of um, emotional abuse. And to kind of uh, look at it that way. So I think I, you know, I learned that I wasn't, I hadn't been crazy. That there was, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of uh, validation from all these outside people of of why um, the way we were navigating it was not healthy. Um, and also validation of just, you know, also all the good things about it and all the things about it that there should be less shame around, um, you know, talking to sex researchers and doing research myself on how common certain kinks are, what's the psychology behind why we might 
be drawn towards being submissive or towards a, a daddy-girl relationship or any of these things, I think, help me understand and have more just um, acceptance for myself that these are totally, you know, um, acceptable, not-so-weird desires that many people mm-hmm. have but just might not talk about. Right, right. Well, it's really great that you didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, like you didn't yeah. uh, assume that all non-monogamy was going to be like your first relationship and that you were able to separate it out, that like you like the style of relating um, and there can be a way to do it more healthy than than you first mm-hmm. did it. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's that way in most relationships, right? Each way, each relationship we hopefully learn more about right. ourselves and the, and what we like and don't like or, you know, what we won't accept going forward or, or what did or didn't work. So I think in the same way that I had monogamous relationships before and felt like, yeah, something's not working, but I learned that, it, you know, this value in a person is really important to me and I'm not going to swear off falling in love again or, or whatever else. It was right. kind of the same feeling of like, oh, okay, I like this new framework, but it's going to be different relationships moving forward because it'll be right. different people. Right. And, yeah, so when people hear, you know, that I'm non-monogamous and what I do for work, they say something like, polyamory, does, does that really work? Don't those relationships always yeah. fail or something like that? And I say, well, does monogamy work? I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, it's not about the structure of the relationship. It's about the skill set that you have in the relationship. And, yeah, some people aren't cut out. I mean, did you find that in your writing that some people are just more well-suited for monogamy and some are better suited for open? Like, what are the differences between people and why should they decide on what structure to to follow yeah well I mean we do know you know certain surveys that polyamorous people tend to be more extroverted sensation seeking open to new experiences swingers interestingly are more politically conservative on average mm-hmm. but they mm-hmm. also have higher education levels income and um, man- more managerial positions so there's certain trends, but I think really what makes it more or less likely to work from for, for someone is the power dynamic that exists in their relationship or relationships um, and kind of the way they're able to or not able to navigate non-monogamy and communicating around it. Um, I think you know, Dr. Lisa um, Hamilton, she is a sex researcher who's done some research on non-monogamy, and she did a pretty wide survey um, that hasn't been published yet, but that I interviewed her about, where she kind of asked people about their feelings around non-monogamy and monogamy and their openness to each, and found that most people kind of fell on this natural bell curve, sort of like the mm-hmm. Kinsey scale, where you had some mm-hmm. people who are very much on one end or another, but that most people really were kind of in the middle and that with the right person or people or situation, they could potentially go either way. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I I think it, for me, you know, it's just been really interesting to see how um, my experience of what non-monogamy feels like is so different given a different 
relationship dynamic, um, which it seems like, oh, of course, obviously. But I kind of, at the time when I was practicing, I was like, wow, I guess I'm going to always just like feel anxious all the time, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, or and feel like nervous that my partner is going to be like stolen away from me. And, um, you know, I'm always humble about it. Who knows what it'll feel like in the future, but uh, it doesn't feel that way now. So mm-hmm. I think right. it, that had a lot more to do with just how um, little power I had in that other dynamic and, and how I wasn't feeling respected or safe or like I had um, the ability to really say no. Right. Um, and you said it depends on the power dynamic. Can you uh, elaborate that a little bit? Well, I think that for many people it's harder to feel confident when they don't have a sense of power in their relationship. And that doesn't mean um, they can't be submissive, but I guess rather that there's that feeling of mutual um, investment and say and consent. So for example, I like profile another couple in the book, um, Amalia and Rory, and they're in the lifestyle, kind of more on the polyamorous end in practice, but they don't identify as such. And she really identifies as a sub, and she loves seeing him with other women and mm-hmm. hearing about it um, isn't really that interested in her for herself, but that's her kink. Um, and, you know, I think having gotten to know them, part of the reason is that Amalia is this incredibly gorgeous woman and her husband just worships her and she knows Mm -hmm. he's not going anywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. She just feels very safe in the relationship. So as a sub, kind of one of the ways she gets to manufacture that feeling or not manufacture, experience that feeling of submission is to, you know, see the quote unquote threat of that competition. But at the end of the day, she really doesn't believe he's going to ever leave her. And she has that kind of ultimate trust in the relationship. And so that seems to really work for them. And of course it'd be different for everyone, but um, that's one example of how like power dynamics can be very intricate, right? Because you might have someone who's more the dom and someone who's more the sub, but in a healthy dom sub thing, the sub should have that ultimate consent. So I think that, Mm -hmm. In non-monogamous dynamics, if there's one person who's feeling really insecure um, that maybe their partner's hiding things from them or they just feel like their partner's not very committed or their emotional needs aren't being met or any of the reasons um, that it's going to be yeah, hard to practice because there's just that imbalance of security in the attachment. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Imbalance of security. Hmm. I like the way you put that. <laughs> I've definitely experienced that. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's and so interesting I, how it can change so dramatically from one relationship to another. Like I had a very, totally. because of the dynamic, a very anxious attachment with Adam. And now I have a very secure one in a, a different relationship, maybe even sometimes a little bit avoidant. So it's like mm-hmm. attachment styles are interesting because they're not um, fixed. You might have certain tendencies mm-hmm. based on your childhood and personality, but really each dynamic can bring out very different things. Definitely. Yeah. 
Well, yes, and I think about couples I've worked with where um, the woman is kind of going along with polyamory, even though she doesn't really want to because she doesn't mm-hmm. want to break up the family or she's financially dependent and has kind mm-hmm. of lost her sense of sovereignty and, you know, self-power. So she's mm-hmm. just trying to make it work, even though it's not really right for her. So I think about that power dynamic, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's unfortunate when that's the situation, if understandable, um, because it's like ideally this is a way for women especially to experience more liberation in their relationships, right, or to question these kinds of paradigms and traditional patriarchy and and to say, yeah, I don't just need to have one person meet all my needs and, and no one can own me. But when non-monogamy becomes just kind of another form of coercion or means of control um, or a way that the person with more power already holds even more power, you know, I think that that's where you see unhealthier things arise. So, um, and also resentment of non-monogamy as a concept because, you know, nobody wants that to become the new norm they're forced into. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so you talked about liberation um, and that it's a, a good opportunity for women to feel more sexual liberation. So there's a misconception that polyamory is just so that men can get their rocks off whenever they want. So can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about how it's empowering for women? Yeah, so I mean, for me personally, the parts that were most empowering were um, just being, feeling like I really had permission to be as voracious as I wanted to be, that I didn't have to tamp down my desire and that for the first time, um, because that happened to be his kink, you know, to see me with other men, sort of like Amalia, uh, like seeing her husband with other uh, women, that it was actually kind of like a good thing. And that was just such a paradigm shift of going from feeling like, you know, each person I slept with was like um, another point against me or something on some imaginary, you know, record that was being kept tallying um, versus like, no, you can like go and do whoever you want, do as much as you want, you know, it's good, it's sexy. So that was a big shift. The other thing was that it really helped me come into my queerness um, because I had been interested in, in women for my whole life, less consciously trans and non-binary people who I also realized later on I could be attracted to. And I had tried, you know, putting on my profile that I was bisexual. I'd I'd had a couple experiences with women, but really nothing serious, not a lot of luck. Um, I wasn't very good at doing the pursuing, it seemed like, and it was so much easier to have men come to me um, and to just kind of, have boyfriend after boyfriend and that's what society expects and to just kind of think oh maybe it's not real because like I seem to be doing fine but with non-monogamy because I have that foundation of um, I guess a relationship at home already that was serious and and in many ways at least at first when I was at the point in the story where I'm coming into my queerness more supportive um, that yeah kind of gave me a foundation from which to uh, go after my desires in a way I hadn't been 
confident enough to before. Um, mm-hmm. And now that I, I know I'm bisexual, it also means that I won't have to choose, right? And um, I think that's potentially very liberating for a lot of uh, women as well. Right. I can imagine that, yeah. So this is, uh, you're an immersion journalist, and so you, you're really using your own life here. So was it really vulnerable mm-hmm. to... Was this your first memoir, and was it really vulnerable to put mm-hmm. yourself out there like that? And did you have to come out to anybody before the book was published? Yeah, yeah, it's very vulnerable. Um, I did. I mean, I think it was not an official coming out because when I was living it, I was out about it to my parents a couple years in to my family more or less, but, you know, it wasn't something I talked about a lot. It was like they knew that was happening, but I tried not to talk about it, and, and I didn't want to worry them, and it, I was kind of further self-isolating. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I feel like more what's been a coming out has been just about being bisexual and owning that label more and letting friends and family know, yeah, this is real, it's not a phase, it's not about being experimental or or just slutty or whatever these other stereotypes are, like that this is um, a book that's very much about coming into my queerness and my bisexuality and what does that mean and the um, imposter syndrome and gatekeeping that can um, be part of that as well. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And so you said earlier that um... – you know, you had to work through some jealousy. I know I had, I think anybody who embarks on the journey of non-monogamy has to figure (laughs) out how to dance with their jealousy. And I also teach classes on how to do that, but I'd love to hear how you worked it out yourself. Um, Well, not very well in that (laughs) situation. You'll see me contending with it. I mean, in some ways really well, because through kind of exposure therapy and repeated sitting with uncomfortable emotions by the end of the relationship I was able to you know handle them having multiple other partners one of them um you know long term and uh like people staying over at the house and things like that that in the beginning would have been intolerable to me but Mm -hmm. I still felt like an elevated level of anxiety that I wouldn't tolerate now But I think that in retrospect, you know, I learned in, like, interviewing my metamor, some revelations as I was even writing the book of things that were happening behind my back while I was being told another thing that were real violations of our agreement um, and safety. And so I think that that combined with the um, gaslighting and everything else, the berating of my jealousy as a unacceptable and mature emotion that needed to be trained out of me rather than, you know, empathized with and, and negotiated made it very difficult to not feel jealous. And that my jealousy, you know, Kathy Labriola, who I know you've talked to and who's my counselor, who's in the book a lot. Um, she writes in Love and Abundance that, you know, love is like or jealousy is like a smoke alarm there to alert you um, that there might be a fire and it's up to you to like check the smoke detector and see like, is there, you know, actual smoke in here and an actual fire or do I just need to change the batteries? 
And so mm-hmm. I think that in that case, I was, it was going off partially because I was just adapting to non-monogamy and that's hard and jealousy and that's hard, but also because there was real fire and there was my intuition and I was being told, no, the batteries just need changing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so of course I continued to be jealous. Whereas mm-hmm. um, at least so far now with my um, current live-in partner, the idea of him being with other people is pretty exciting to me in a way it wasn't mm-hmm. before. But I think mm-hmm. that that's really, and that's not to say I'll never contend with jealousy, but I just experience um, pleasure in it or feel like rooting for him more and, and things like that. And I think it has to just do with the dynamic we have, but also the the trust, you know, and, and the fact that I trust that he's not going to um you know, do things behind my back and say another thing that if he messes up, he'll tell me, you know. Right. So you said you interviewed your metamors. I love that. Um, is, there, <laughs> is there like a something in there that other people can take away from that who aren't writing a book around interviewing their metamors? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, the main metamor whose pseudonym is Leia in the book, we had formed a friendship that was mostly text message based where we started talking to each other all the time. And it was kind of based on me reaching out after I read Dedeker Winston's The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory. And she mm-hmm. suggested that one of the best ways to combat jealousy is to like befriend your metamor. Mm-hmm, and I was like, right. okay, well, I seem pretty jealous, so let me try that. And it really did help a lot because we became friends. Um, and you see that dynamic explored in the book too. Um, and so the interviews came later once I was working on the book and we were talking about things in retrospect. But at the time, you know, when she was my metamor, um, it was much more like just a sort of normal, quote unquote, friendship uh, with mm-hmm. a lot of texting. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks. I do open relationship and polyamory coaching, and you can reach me at sumatisparks.com. And we are speaking with Rachel Krantz. Am I pronouncing that right, Krantz? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, Rachel Krantz, who is the author of a new memoir called Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. If you have any questions for Rachel, please feel free to call in at 657-383-1132. Again, that's 657 657- Three eight three eleven thirty two, and we'd love to answer your questions. Um, otherwise, we'll continue on here. Um, I heard you say that you've, you know, you've already like quoted from a couple of books, and you have a counselor. So, how important do you think it is if somebody's newly embarking on non-monogamy that that they do research and get support like that? I think very important. Um, I think it's also very important to have some sort of community that I don't think I, I sort of was making attempts at it, but, um, you know, I think especially with the BDSM aspect of things, I was not involved in any sort of kink community. So I didn't really know um, that it was not a good idea that he and I had no real communication or boundaries or rules around BDSM. And that in fact, he sort of, was like, oh, I don't like BDSM. Like those people are pretending we're just being us, but it was a very 
extreme dom sub dynamic. And I think if I had had that community, you know, to be like, hey, is this okay? Like he's saying this, but I feel like I was just, you know, like my consent was violated, but I don't feel like I have a right to say so that they would have been able to guide me with that. And I think same thing with non-monogamy. It's important to have that, you know, community, whether it be this radio show and you can call in or Facebook groups or meetups or whatever else. But yeah, I think a counselor um, is really important if you can do it. You know, it's tough for a lot of people to afford someone who uh, is going to be non-monogamy or kink-friendly. There is a directory of, you know, kink-friendly professionals um, that you can try to find someone who's maybe covered by your insurance if you can't pay for a specialist out of pocket. Um, and then if none of that's an option, there's also the network. La Red is a good resource. They particularly serve polyamorous, kinky, and queer communities. And it's kind of like the, you know, focusing on domestic violence. Um, mm. But I think that's a really good place to start if you just need help finding help Can or you if you're that? not sure. Yeah. Um, the network La Red, L-A-R-E-D. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. So you, you mentioned kink, kink a lot, and you kind of, it kind of flows with the polyamorous you're talking, but um, mm -hmm. do you find that a lot of polyamorous people are kinky or is it a certain percentage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a lot of crossover. I know that Kathy Labriola works with both populations a lot, and she said she said to me that, when she gets clients who call her from areas where there's not a big enough, you know, polyamorous community to go to a meetup or to find people to date, that she'll often suggest they check out kink meetups just because there tend to be a lot of polyamorous people in those communities mm -hmm. and they are often more developed. Um, and, yeah, that there's just that kind of openness, right, and that it might cross over. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I was surprised when I came to Maui and there just weren't very many polyamorous people here, but I went on FetLife and wow, it was popping. <laughs> so many people on there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's interesting. And did Who you knew? find a lot but of Maui them were also polyamorous? Um, yeah. I met somebody. Well, he was just visiting though, but I met somebody who was amazing. He was actually house sitting for his lover in her and her husband's house and he's friends with, with her hmm. husband. Um, but he was just visiting for a while. So too bad he left. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but yeah. And another person wanted poly fidelity. Um, he wanted me to join him oh. and his wife and just be the three of us. And yeah. I was like, no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're actually starting a community here. I love what you said about community. It is so important. And I, I do the same thing. Oftentimes I'll get clients that are from North Dakota or like some really far off place mm -hmm. and there's just no community around them and try to help them hook up either online during the pandemic or a nearby big city that they can drive to once or twice a month and start clicking with community because it's so important to be around people who are normalizing this mm -hmm. way of living otherwise you think you're the only one that's ever had this problem so anyway we have a community that's mm -hmm. starting here on Maui that was started by the couple who created the soul play festival in California 
Um, mm -hmm. They moved here to Maui and they started a little community here and we meet once a month, just have discussions and potluck. And it's about 40 or 50 people, which is a lot for a Maui event. And we wow, sit out on the cool. lawn, you know, yeah. we can be outside, which is so great. Yeah. So we can be outside on the lawn and social distance and everything. So, yeah, we're starting to, it's starting to happen here. So come visit me on Maui and I'll show you a good time. Oh, my gosh, I'd love to. Yeah, if anyone listening has a big house they want to host me at, I'd love to come. <laughs> One more reason to come. Yeah, um, but, I mean, I think also the thing is that it's important to talk about how, you know, it, we don't want to talk about people who use non-monogamy, maybe not even consciously or kink, not even consciously as a means of um, control or as an extension, you know, that it's, there's certain ways unhealthy behaviors are expressed in those dynamics, just like in monogamy, there's certain ways that's expressed through those dynamics. Like, you know, in monogamy, we see with abusive relationships, 101 is like, why were you talking to him? Why were you wearing that? Right. And, and that over half the women killed in the United States are, killed by a romantic partner and at least 12% of those cases are associated with jealousy. So clearly oh, wow. like monogamy has plenty of bad things and abuse and iterations that are important to talk about, but also in non-monogamy, of course, because it's all kinds of humans are going to have every range of outcomes. And some of those are going to be people who abuse that power when they're doms or people who abuse that power when they're non-monogamous. And so having that outside community if you find yourself in one of those situations is really important because you can ask like is this okay because it's it's just very confusing when it's your first um unconventional relationship and it's already stigmatized that someone who is doing it in an unhealthy or unethical way might say things like this is just like what being non-monogamous is and you need to adjust to it or you just need mm -hmm. to like overcome your jealousy and your societal conditioning. And, and, you know, often they're partially right. So it can get very confusing, but that, you know, doesn't mean that they should be invalidating your feelings and experience and that you should feel unsafe or anxious all the time and that you just need to evolve beyond it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's important to talk about what, unhealthy dynamics look like in these situations sometimes, you know, ways it might be expressed differently. Um, and also, yeah, to just have that community so that you don't end up on an island where you already feel like you're marginalized in the first place, trying mm -hmm. these things that aren't societally accepted, and then you don't have anyone to talk to about it except for your partner or partners. Right. Well, that's another reason why I thought interviewing your metamore would be a good idea because, like, you found out that things were happening mm -hmm. that, you know, you weren't being told about. And I, I think that that happens more than we want to realize. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. once the metamores yeah. start talking, they're like, hmm, that's not what he told me. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this way of life is becoming more and more common, um, at least in this country. I'm haven't spent any time in other countries, so I don't know. But um, why do you think it's that more people are looking for new ways to relate? Well, I think there's several reasons. One is that, you know, I think there's greater acknowledgement that monogamy is not working for a lot of people, especially with the super high standards we place for the first time within just 
a few generations on what a monogamous partnership would be. It's that person's your best friend, they're your um, soulmate, they're the best lover you've ever had, they're your co-parent, they're, you know, it's just like Esther Perel has written and talked a lot about how it's just, that is a very new paradigm and a very unrealistic one because desire needs distance and it's very hard to have both that security and that feeling of lust, but we're kind mm-hmm. of expecting one person to do that, even though chemically in our brain, what happens after a couple of years switches. Um, and it's it's not going to feel the same as it did in the beginning. And it's mm-hmm. desires likely to take a hit. And that's shown, in, especially for women, actually, you know, contrary to stereotypes that men are more likely to cheat, younger women are cheating at a higher rate than men the same age now and in 2013 were 40% more likely to cheat than they were in 1990, which I think Mm. makes sense because, you know, as women have more financial independence, higher levels of education, having less children, there's less things hopefully, you know, tethering us, right, or maybe less fear of, oh, if my life changes or I blow up my situation that I will be like homeless or something like that. That was a real, you know, concern for a lot of people and, and still is. Um, and I think that also there's just more general um, dialogue around the fact that, you know, for people to maintain desire, there needs to be some sort of novelty and that this is, a lot of research showing particularly, again, true for women. There was one study I found really interesting of um, 11,500 British people, and it found that, of all ages, and it found that women in relationships over a year old were less interested in sex, and the effect was worse if they lived with a partner, and that after 90 months, there was, like, a huge drop-off cliff in desire um, mm-hmm. If it was that same partner, whereas men's held relatively steady. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I think despite this standard evolutionary narrative of, like, oh, men want to spread their seed and women want to, mm-hmm. like, entrap them to monopolize mm-hmm. the sperm, that actually, like, there's plenty of evidence in the animal kingdom that there's some desire for sperm competition, quote-unquote, or novelty, you know, Um And, yeah, so I think there's just more people saying, like, I don't want to get divorced, you know, and that half the marriages are ending that way, or I don't want to be serial monogamous enough to, you know, switch up my life every three to five years if I don't want to, um, you know, ever give up the potential of, of falling in love again or having novel romantic experiences, sexual experiences. Right. Yeah, I'm, I have kind of a, a new, newish lover who's in a primary partnership, and they work together, they live together, they're just together all the time. And she was feeling really um, threatened because he and I had this, you know, passion and lust going because it was new, you know. And mm-hmm. I wanted, I didn't want to, you know, make it so that she was suffering. So you know, I was kind of holding back a little. But we discovered mm-hmm. that every time he and I connected, he would bring that back to her. So they would have a better mm-hmm. time after he saw me. So eventually she she would look forward to it. She'd be like, can't you go have a yeah. date with Suji yeah. again? 
That's awesome. That's great. Thanks that's so like that's case to your benefit. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I my um, partner just like met someone new, and it's just at the very beginning. But I felt a similar like excitement of, oh, I know this is going to be like exciting for me, and and let me see him from that desirous distance again, you know, and and see him anew yeah. because that's so much of the advantage too. It's not just the new people, but the way having that distance from your partner, whether you're the one having the outside experience or I should say pre-existing partner, like whether you're the one having the outside experience or they are, like there's this newfound distance and seeing them um, through the eyes of, of someone else potentially or, you know, getting a chance to miss them while you're with someone else and, and appreciate all the things um, that you love about the person back home or the person you've been with longer. So I think that, yeah, there's some real potential in it, strengthening relationships. I've seen um, not, you know, it's not automatically just that it only benefits in terms of novelty. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's, that's you said something there that I think is really important about polyamory is that the the myth is that, you know, if, if my partner dates somebody else, they're more likely to leave me because they're getting intimate with other people. But I see it as they're free to choose who they want to be with. So every moment that they choose me feels even more special. They're not with me just because mm-hmm. they think they have to. They're with me because they want to. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Feels, yeah, yeah so it's something that feels better about that. And then the other thing that you said was, it made me think of one of my first open relationships. I remember this primal feeling of when somebody else wanted my guy, you know, it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's pretty hot, isn't he? I kind of was taking it mm-hmm. for granted. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And similarly, mm-hmm. when somebody would be flirting with me, I would feel kind of enlivened with, by that and, mm-hmm. you know, want to like take better care of myself because, it feels good mm-hmm. to be flirted with and wanted. So I think all of that energy that we share with people we're attracted to is just healthy. It wakes us up. It keeps us alive. It's life force energy, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it just it depends on the people, but that can definitely be a great outcome of it um, for a lot of people who practice. I think for some people it's a matter of, the trade-off is not worth it. They experience too much jealousy or too much feeling of insecurity that they would basically rather make the compromise to, um, you know, have less of that feeling so that they don't have as much of the other negative feelings. So I think it's whatever works for that person. And, and, you know, at the end of the um, book, I talk with this Buddhist monk who becomes like my mentor and, and I ask him, like, well, do you, don't you think, like, non-monogamy is a more kind of Buddhist or evolved way to be in relationship of, like, you're kind of, it's non-attachment and you're saying, like, I'm not placing all these demands on you or trying to restrict you. And he was really like, well, what matters is the intention and how it meets the result. So mm-hmm. if your intention is to be more loving in the world, to have less suffering in your life, if non-monogamy brings that about on a whole um, for you, then that's good. That's a path you should go on if it's consistently bringing more suffering into your life, more hatred, or more any of these other things, maybe the trade-off of 
you know, those sort of life force romantic novel energies is not worth it. So, yeah, I think it's really just worth looking at, um, you know, not just what kind of high are you getting, but is it is it worth the lows for you? How, how are you in line with your values um, and the way you want to be feeling or, or not? And to not place so much value judgment on either way and that perhaps it'll be fluid. Perhaps you'll go through periods where more non-monogamy or less non-monogamy are better for you, but that it's, it's just allowed to be something that um, you can navigate through your whole life or a conversation you can have. Right. Um, because we're not used to realizing that we're free to create our relationships as we want them to be. We, so many of us are programmed to believe that they have to look a certain way and we have to follow a certain model. So suddenly when mm-hmm. we're told like, oh, you get to design your relationship how you want, it's like, what? There's, there's just too many choices now. How do I do that? <laughs> yeah. So what, what would you say to somebody when, when they know, they realize, like, wow, I can, I can design it exactly as I want? I mean, I think that's a very exciting place to be um, and to just pay attention and, and trust your intuition and to have um, – you know, mindfulness practices and support so that you can check in as you navigate and explore this with, um, you know, what what really is your gut telling you is a good direction or a good way to practice. But certainly having overall standards of, you know, ethical conduct and mutual respect and compassion and honesty, a willingness to communicate and empathize with other people's feelings, I think, that's all going to be necessary no matter what kind of relationship you're in. But yeah, perhaps it's even more important to actively be, you know, working on from personal growth perspective when you're non-monogamous, just because it requires so much maturity potentially to move outside these paradigms of the standard script. Um, And then I think I also like the saying of like, love isn't finite, but time is, and just acknowledging that tension of, you know, for me, I think that I could potentially love thousands and thousands and thousands of people in my heart and and do on some level, you know, but I really feel like I could just like fall in love with so many of the world's people have given enough time, but I just have one life, right? So there's certain compromises that need to be made. And if I want to have um, a long-term partnership and deep intimacy that, um, you know, that's going to mean maybe not having as many of those outside experiences as potentially statistically possible. And and so, yeah, I like also the book designer relationships talks Mm -hmm. about this, um, of just like this idea of designing what works for you and, and your relationships and having it be a conversation of really like, how would this, you know, work well for us in this dynamic? Um, and, like, if we were to design this thing to meet both of our needs as best as possible, what would that mm-hmm. look like? And just really starting with a kind of blank canvas. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's great. Awesome. Well, I love that you wrote this book. And is there anything else that you're hoping your readers will take away from reading the book um, beyond what you've already shared? Um, Yeah, I mean, I hope that they feel less shame and more acceptance 
for their own desires and um, potential explorations and more empathy for people who live outside sexual and romantic norms. Um, and also that if they are, you know, survivors of emotional abuse, that they feel like they've been validated by all the psychologists I um, interview and maybe feel like they understand what happened to them a little bit better and, and how to move forward in a way that's not about um, blame or viewing these as like a victim villain scenario, but just like dynamics and um, and how might one move forward after something like that, because it's very hard when you're embedded in it to imagine life after and that you would even be able to have one um, because that's part of what the dynamic is, is you're often like, you know, told that you're not self-sufficient. Um, or you are incapable of doing lots of things, taking care of yourself. So, yeah, I hope it just empowers certain readers who are maybe in that situation as well. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, it's been really a delight speaking with you, Rachel. Um, I want to give you, you a too. moment to tell our reader, our listeners how they can reach you and how to get your book and anything else you want to share. Yeah, you can... Find open wherever books are sold online, um, your local bookstore. If they don't have it at your local bookstore or library, please request it. Um, and, yeah, but you can order it online wherever you like to buy books. There's also an audible version um, of the audiobook, which is narrated by me. So that's fun if you like listening to audiobooks and want to hear exactly how I intended lines to land and all of that. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at my name, at Rachel Kramps. Um, and okay. that's great if you can follow me on there and, you know, keep up to date and, and be part of my, uh, I'm thinking of it as my, like, love army of, you know, just this giant shield of support and empathy and, and love that, all these friends and also strangers have been giving me that really helps when I encounter um, judgment or hate speech. And so, yes, please, please join my love army. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Rachel. I wish you the best of luck with your book and thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. And thank you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.